Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borgson-Quito, and today we're looking at special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. To help us better understand the topic, I'm joined by Jocelyn Arrell and Audrey Lee, partners at Goodwin. Thank you for having us, Sarah. Happy to be here. Great. Now, Jocelyn, let me start by asking you to explain a bit about what SPACs actually are, how they work, and why we're hearing so much about them lately. Sure, happy to take that one. Um, SPACs, as as Sarah mentioned, are special purpose acquisition companies. They are essentially a pool of capital that is formed through an initial public offering. So the, the SPAC sponsors literally go through the traditional IPO process complete with SEC um, review and roadshows to raise a pool of capital that is then placed into trust and available to combine with an operating company and to really fund that operating company's IPO. So when we're talking about SPACs, we're essentially talking about two IPOs. First, the IPO of the SPAC itself, creating that pool of capital um, available for an operating company. And then secondly, what we call the SPAC IPO or SIPO, where an operating company combines with the SPAC and through that process takes the operating company um, takes the operating company public. Why are we hearing about them today? Um, because they have really increased in terms of the number of deals uh, that we that we are seeing. There was a year over year significant increases from 2015 through 2020, but 2020 was really a breakout year. Um, it was going to happen as more and more people were looking at the structure and thinking that the structure was something that really fit into their investment portfolio. It is now an asset class that, you know, private equity, um, venture capitalists, um, entrepreneurs, and increasingly participants in the real estate space are getting involved in. Um, they, people are looking at the structure as an efficient way to, go, to take companies public um, and as an alternative to the traditional IPO um, or to direct listing. So in essence, it's really giving companies optionality in terms of how they want to approach the market, and it's given sponsor participants a new type of vehicle um, to use in their, in their structure. Um, in 2020, there were 248 IPOs of SPACs. So far today in 2021, there have been 141. So it really shows how quickly the SPACs have caught on and the number of SPACs that are in the marketplace um, looking for combinations with operating companies. It's been equally vibrant on the business combination side with 66 um, SPAC IPOs in 2020, so the business combinations with the, with the SPAC. And, and so far this year in 2021, we're tracking at 12. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, a lot of excitement um, around, um, around the structure. Great. And Audrey, I'd like to ask you about how SPACs have been embraced by the commercial real estate industry, including REITs. Sure, happy to take that one. Uh, we're definitely seeing the real estate industry taking a keener interest in SPACs. Um, as Jocelyn mentioned, I mean, there are a lot of SPACs right now. There's nearly 300 SPACs, you know, armed with about $90 billion in cash. 
and just last month alone, an average about of five new SPACs launched each day, and we're pulling in more than 70% of all money raised through IPOs. And so all the real estate SPACs have not been as prolific as some of the other hotter industries like technology. We're definitely seeing the real estate industry embracing SPACs as there's a growing acceptance that SPACs are a way of taking companies public. Um, you know, so far, many SPACs that have been formed by real estate companies have focused on transactions um, that would create synergies between real estate and prop tech. You know, Jocelyn and I last week took a SPAC called Fifth Wall that is focused on acquiring a technology business focused on verticals of the real estate industry public. Um, and, you know, Tishman Spayer back SPAC, uh, which focus was on acquiring prop tech companies, announced last month that it was merging with Latch, the smart lock maker. Um, I think you may have heard about Porch, which is an online real estate home services marketplace, also getting acquired by a SPAC. And, you know, I think the bigger one is Open Door, which was um, an online marketplace for buying and selling houses, which, um, you know, closed and was valued at $4.8 billion. So, you know, we're seeing more SPACs, not even just in the prop tech space, but also in other real estate assets. Um, you know, Gore's Group last month completed a merger with United Wholesale Mortgage, uh, which is the largest wholesale residential mortgage lender in the United States, and Trinity Merger Corp. Uh, this is a SPAC that was for focused on acquiring a company with the real estate component, merged with Broadmark Realty Capital. Um, and that combined entity is now an internally managed REIT that provides secure financing to real estate investors and developers. And what we're seeing is, you know, REITs um, are also taking note of the recent SPAC activity. So Simon Property Group, the nation's largest mall owner, you know, recently filed for a SPAC. You know, CBRE, the world's largest commercial real estate firm, formed a SPAC and took it public last December. Um, and, you know, another one that comes to mind is Equity Group Investments. Uh, the founder, Sam Zell, who I think a lot of people know in the REIT sector, um, as a chairman of Equity Commonwealth, which is an office REIT, you know, launched a SPAC last fall. So, you know, what we're seeing is that there's a lot of cash available for investment, and people are recognizing that SPACs are a good way for investors to get access to private companies. And so we're seeing this momentum and, and, and the traction growing in the real estate sector as well, outside of other sectors. So, Audrey, it sounds like the types of acquisition targets um, that REITs might pursue are really all over the board. Um, how competitive is the market right now? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, SPACs are just gaining traction. And so, you know, we're seeing real estate SPACs, um, you know, acquiring or expressing an interest in a variety of targets. Uh, you know, some of the ones that we've seen are in the distribution center, industrial, vacation resort, you know, senior housing, mortgage financing, and prop tech spaces, as I mentioned earlier. But the list can be fairly broad. You know, so Simon Properties filing, uh, you know, lists restaurants, education, gaming, sports, hospitality, e-commerce, um, among others as potential target sectors. So there is a whole world out there. And, you know, what, what we think is, you know, these targets, what they have in common is that they're generally pure play and growth-oriented, uh, you know, with potential for attractive risk-adjusted returns. And so given that, you know, real estate is one of the biggest assets, if not the biggest asset, I mean, we, we expect to see a lot more activity. And there's, you know, real estate assets that we haven't even seen activity from, but, you know, which we can expect to see in the future. Um, you know, some things that come to mind are data centers, wireless towers and cold storage warehouses, um, 
I think that cold storage is going to be more critical going forward, uh, given that it's going to be needed for the distribution of COVID-19 vaccine. And also, you know, it's now we're seeing that it's more in high demand um, as a result of an increase in online food delivery services such as Amazon. And so, you know, in a, in a struggling real estate market, um, which ha- was negatively impacted by COVID, you know, going public via a stock transaction, um, you know, may be more appealing than a traditional IPO for two reasons. And so we, we, we think um, we're going to be seeing a lot more REITs taking notice um, and taking advantage of this market. You know, first facts, there's, there's two primary reasons. I mean, you know, first facts are able to tout long-term growth projections um, due to regulatory differences between stacks and a traditional IPO. Um, you know, for example, Fisker, which is an electric car company that went public via stack last year, they were able to tell investors that it projected revenues of over $13 billion in 2025. Now, this could not have been done if they were doing a traditional IPO. So being able to provide visibility into future financial growth for real estate companies that have been negatively affected could, could be a real bonus. And, you know, secondly, for, for REITs and other issuers whose businesses are primarily that of acquiring and holding real estate or interest in real estate, you know, they can avoid having to comply with the onerous Guy 5 requirements that would be required if they were pursuing a traditional IPO. So we think that, you know, the, the, these stacks are going to have staying power. Um, you know, we're not, there's a lot of targets to be had. You know, there's over 800 private REITs just in the U.S. alone. Um, and, you know, the, the investor base is also changing. You know, as of last year, there were eight investors that had more than a billion dollars invested in stacks. And we're seeing more pension plans and institutions like Saudi Arabia's $300 billion public investment fund. You know, these are investors who typically make long-term investments, investing in stacks, and they're always looking for good deals. And so because there's just so much dry powder in the private equity markets right now, um, um, we think there's a lot of potential to be had in this market. And if Bill Ackman can go out and raise a $4 billion SPAC, um, you know, it's getting everybody talking about SPACs and, 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 and you know, people, those players in the real estate sector also taking note of how it can be a good tool for, for deal making and getting deals done. All right. And Jocelyn, are there some key issues for targets to consider before they commit to a SPAC? Absolutely, Sarah. Um, I, Audrey touched on, you know, one of the, one of the key issues um, in, in a, in a DSPAC or, or SPAC IPO transaction, the business combination with the operating company. Um, we, we use projections. The communication rules are very different from that of a traditional IPO where there, where there are real quiet periods um, and not the same level of engagement with investors. In, in SPACs, it really starts out after an agreement has been reached uh, with respect to the valuation um, with a, an investor deck that contains the, the um, investment thesis and contains projections. The SPAC, together with the operating company, then go out to the SPAC's public investors as well as the pipe market. Typically, there's a collateral private placement that's attached to the to the transactions. It's where um, often the typical IPO shareholders come into the cap table for the company. Um, but that, that deck um, is a deep dive into the company and has a lot of forward-looking information. It's one of the reasons why you're seeing companies 
where revenues aren't out until, you know, future years. Audrey mentioned um, Fisker. Uh, the whole EV, you know, space is, you know, is indicative of this. Um, the life science biotech uh, space again, but the ability to really take a deep dive, to work through models um, with the investors and to share projections is very different from, you know, from a traditional IPO process. In addition, the valuation is struck up front. In a, in a traditional IPO, you go through the roadshow at the very end of the process, and it's as a result of those roadshow meetings that the final valuation is determined. In a SPAC IPO, the, the valuation is determined up front between the SPAC and the operating company and then validated by the SPAC's investors as well as the as well as the pipe investors so it's it, it it doesn't just stay with the SPAC and the um and the operating company it is validated by mutual funds long holders um etc the same investors that would come into that would come into a traditional IPO and so setting that valuation up front and then executing from there um, provides a, a, an advantage in that the valuation is known up front. I think it was a you know, structuring deals in that manner, structuring deals that were that were um, structured to close is one of the reasons I do think that SPACs really proliferated in 2020 um, when everything was stopping. When co you know when we were realizing the impact of COVID in March of of last year. SPACs didn't stop. The, the, the transactions that I was working on all closed. Um, the IPO window for SPACs shut briefly um, in all sectors, but life science-related SPACs, those, those IPOs continued. There was only about a three-week hiatus um, in, in the actual capital raising for, you know, for SPAC IPOs themselves. A lot of it is because of the, you know, is because of the structure and the fact that the valuation is is set up front and then we're structuring deals that are that are structured to actually um, close even in volatile markets. And then the third point I'd like to raise is the fact that there's more control in this in this type of a transaction in terms of who your shareholder base is. Um, operating companies really get to take a deep dive in who the investors are in the SPAC. SPACs, when they're IPOing, are taking a real interest in who it is that, you know, who the parties are that are investing in their SPAC, and they're taking, um, they're really guiding that process. They're curating who is going to attend their Test the Waters meetings, who is in the book, what the allocations are, so that they can really present um, a, a classic traditional IPO investor base to operating companies. Um, through the pipe as well, you're adding mutual funds and other long-term holders. So the the operating company itself has much more control over who its investors are. And so, you know, I I firmly believe that the you know the communications, valuation, and shareholder selection are things that really distinguish this structure and and elements that operating companies and SPAC sponsors have found you know is a really really attractive um, alternative. Um, to other IPO options. And finally, Jocelyn, what are some of the unique legal issues that arise with SPACs? Um, you know, SPACs, just like a, you know, just like a traditional IPO, I think, you know, one of the things that people are starting to realize today is that they, they really take 
some pre-IPO planning um, just to make sure that the company is is ready to be a public company at the end of this process. You you will be a public company, and it's it's really important that everything you know be put in be put in place. But you know, one of the things that our structures, our, our private company structures, didn't necessarily contemplate companies going public in this manner. So we often find that when we're looking at the constituent documents, the charters, and the bylaws, um, that the auto, you know automatic conversion in the event of an IPO doesn't cover a SPAC, um, and the SPAC, uh, the operating company shareholders typically own the majority of shares. So this isn't deemed to be a liquidation either. So it falls in this gray area. So it's one. It requires buy-in um, by the company's shareholders, and really getting ahead of that and making sure that it's not just the management team and the SPAC that are, um, you know, having these discussions, but that everybody around the table, um, you know, the investors in the company are not surprised, and that consensus is built because it's not the same straightforward. Path under the under the company's operating documents that would be present if this were handled in a in a traditional IPO. That's changing. Um, you know, there's momentum underfoot, and and people are really internalizing and realizing the growth of this market. Um, but there are a lot of companies um, whose you know whose documents don't really contemplate this, and it's an area that um, we spend a lot of time. On just making sure that we're, you know, we're we're building consensus around these deals. I think the, you know, the last point that I would make is that even though this is an IPO, it's structured as a, you know, as a as a merger transaction. It's meant to be collaborative. Um, it, it is ultimately the, you know, the company's the company's IPO. And sometimes when people are thinking about it as a merger, it's it's really, you know, winning every, you know, every. Every point. This isn't really a sale of the company. Um, it's really an IPO of the company, and I think it, from our perspective as professionals, it's really important to realize that and to you know work with the entire working group collaboratively to um, make sure that we all are rowing in the same direction and helping the company realize its mission of becoming a publicly traded entity. Okay, great. Jocelyn, Audrey, thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Sarah. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, you can subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you access your favorite podcasts.